I have been afraid a lot of times in my life. A lot of times. I remember the first time that I was afraid I would flunk a college class. I was a sophomore at Wheaton College. Wheaton had this stupid requirement, liberal arts, that you had to take math and you had to take English and you had to take history and God forbid you had to take science. What do you need science for? And so you could take like chemistry or biology or geology or as it was known on campus, rocks for jocks. I thought certainly this is my class, rocks for jocks. If the jocks are doing okay, then I'll do okay because I'm smarter than those jocks. So I take the class and my first week quiz, four out of ten. Second week quiz, three out of ten. Third week quiz, five out of ten. Midterm, I get it back at the top, 59. At that point, I'm like, <laughs> I remember going to Dr. Greenberg, <laughs> and he goes, Max, Max, you're doing great for a Bible major. What's the Precambrian explosion anyway? Okay, so I remember, I remember my junior year, I remember my junior year being scared to death of a girl named Jenny. My roommate actually pinned me to the floor in a wrestling hold and would not let me up unless I made a decision to either date her or walk away. He's like, you are flirting. I know you don't know that you're flirting, but it stops here now on the floor. He literally had me pinned to the ground, wasn't going to let me up. So, you know, I asked her out and, and we went on a date and I, I was smitten. And the evening came where I was you know, I was going to ask if she would be, you know, my girlfriend, my girl, my main squeeze, you know, exclusive relationship. And I remember the butterflies in my stomach. You know, what if she says, what if she says no? What if she doesn't like me the way I like her? What if she found, finds out that I'm an absolute idiot when it comes to women? <laughs> like she hasn't already. I remember the fear that I had in my stomach when we started Generations Community Church. What if no one comes? What if no one helps? What if we fail? What if we're wrong about faith and family? Uh, I remember all kinds of fears. Uh, nothing, though, compares to the fear that you have when you're a parent, right? What if I mess this kid up in a big way? My friends... Uh, Steve and Cindy always joke, we don't say for college, we say for counseling. That's where I get it from, you know, is, 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 is uh, Cindy. And so I'm, I'm like, what if, you know, and, and Chris's thing is always, you know, you're going to mess them up, man, you know, you're going to mess them up. So as a pastor and a father, what if my kids grow up to hate God or hate the church? Um, and when you're a parent of a teenager, what if they get pregnant or get somebody pregnant? I mean, you know, we're worried about that all the time, parents of teenagers, go figure. I don't know why. <gasps> okay, fear. Fear is a part of life. Fear is a part of life. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of what-ifs, and we always focus on the negative, don't we? It's kind of funny if you think about it, because what if you pass the class with flying colors? What if the girl or the guy that you're wanting to ask this question says yes and you end up happy together? What if your kid grows up to be president of the United States or even better, leads hundreds if not thousands to Jesus Christ? What if? But we don't tend to focus on those. We don't tend to focus on uh, the vantage point of success. We tend to focus on the negative. 
That's because I think fear has a corner on the market. There are a lot of people who are paralyzed by fear. Fear of heights, fear of being alone, fear of being found out, fear of losing someone that matters to them, fear of growing old, fear of failing. In your life, you're going to face giants. You're going to face fear. And when you do, you're going to have to risk something. In fact, you may have to risk everything. But behind every giant is an opportunity. Let me say that again. Behind every giant is an opportunity. And that's what a young man named David found out long, long ago in the Valley of Elah as two armies faced each other for battle. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's one of the most famous stories of the Bible. If you were ever a Baptist, you heard this story 15,000 times. It's the story of David and Goliath who comes out and says, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I'm Goliath, here I come. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say it that way. 1 Samuel 17, let's see what the, what the Bible account really is. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through, say, uh, 7. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle, encamped between Sukkah and Judah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. Saul uh, countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other opposite, on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Some texts say six foot nine, but he's tall, okay? Uh, nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor-bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. Insert maniacal laugh here. <laughs> Send me a man that I may fight him, uh, uh, that he may fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. So here's a Philistine giant, literally. He's the tallest guy from their army. And he's got thick armor, and he's a seasoned warrior, and he challenges someone from the army of Israel to come fight him in this valley. From what we know of the Israelite army, who is the best match for Goliath? Saul, whom the Bible says is head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. And what's Saul doing? Hiding. Okay? So let's look at the description now of David in verses 12 and following. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an 
Ephratite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shemiah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David, however, was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Oh, how cute. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. So here you have this seasoned warrior with thick armor who's tall, taunting the Israelites, and you have David, the runt of eight boys, who's not even old enough to fight, who's having to tend sheep, who's being sent to the front lines to deliver food to his brothers. Is David any match for Goliath? No. From these descriptions, David is no match for Goliath. Well, David shows up onto the battlefield and sizes up the situation pretty quick because every day the champion comes out. Every day he does the fee-fi-fo-fum bit. Every day he taunts them. And this goes on day after day. So he's bringing food to his oldest brothers. He hears the taunt. He sees the giant. And he says something, I think, rather profound. And that's verse 26. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? So in David's mind, it's Goliath versus whom? It's Goliath versus whom? God. And in David's mind, who's bigger, Goliath or God? God. See, David shows up, and it's not Goliath versus Saul, Goliath versus a man. In David's mind, it's Goliath versus God. And so that's the statement. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Well, David volunteers to go out and meet Goliath. And there's this wonderful uh, interchange in verses 32 and following. Okay, so he's, he's talking to now, he's taken uh, to the uh, tent of the king, of King Saul, and David's having a conversation with Saul about going out to meet this Philistine. Verse 32, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goat, goats. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied here it is again, the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. There's something really important going on in this conversation, and I don't want you to miss it, so I want to draw it out for you. And it has to do with the lion and the bears that, that David has slain. David has relied upon God before when he's been tending his father's sheep and he's relied upon God when he faced an animal that could kill him. And he had faith and confidence in God, and he took and swallowed real hard, and he faced the animal, and he won. And he didn't just do that once. He's done it numerous times. And so he now has a track record with God, 
and a track record with himself, I can count on God, and God will, God will rescue me. God will deliver me. I can count on God. So there's this, this, this faith-building exercise that David is doing as a shepherd. All right? So we pick it up, verse 45 and following. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. How's that for a speech? And I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and hit the Philistine in the forehead. Uh, the stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. We don't tell this part in Sunday school, by the way. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. I know, we, we skipped that part in preschool. <laughs> so, there's a couple of things going on. One, David is consumed by the Lord's reputation. Notice how it keeps coming up. The Lord of, of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. See, there's, there's an aspect here David knows. You think that God is just a God of the hills or that God is just a God of the Israelites. And because you've drawn us out into this valley where your God reigns supreme, you think you can beat us. But I'm telling you, God, the God of Israel, is the God of everything. And you will learn that today. God is bigger than just the hills. God is bigger than just what he did in Egypt. God is the God of everything, and you'll discover that today. There is nothing that can counter God. And so there's this reputation of God that's at stake for David. We know this today with sports fans to a very small degree, right? You can diss my tailgating ability. You can make fun of the fact that I am painted from the chest up, but don't you diss my team, right? Don't you talk smack talk against the Bengals. Some of you are like, really? Yeah. <laughs> sports. That's a zealousness for a reputation, and that's what David feels about God, okay? The second thing is David is completely confident that God is going to save him against all odds. Now, here's the thing. Zeal for God's reputation and confidence in God's ability to save or deliver does not mean that there is an absence of fear. I firmly am convinced that on this day, as David ran out to meet that giant, that there was a knot in his stomach. Okay? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is simply the ability to do what is right or necessary in the face of fear. That's what courage is. How many, how many stones did David have in his bag? Five. How many stones did it take to fell the giant? One. What I want you to know today is one act of courage can change everything. One act of courage can change everything. Just one. So let me ask you a question. What are you afraid of right now? What are you afraid of? 
Is there anything in your life right now that seems impossible to you? One thing you could do is actually take a piece of paper and write it down and spell out the worst case scenario. You know what will happen eight times out of ten? You'll look at that and go, well, I'm not going to die. <laughs> if she says no, if the house doesn't sell, if, 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 I'm not going to die, I'll walk away. All right? So what are you afraid of right now? But then, what might happen if you face down this giant? What might happen if you fell this giant? What might happen if you succeed? That's kind of cool. At some point, when it comes to giants, you got to go all in. Because here's the thing about giants. Giants do not back down. Giants do not yield their territory without a fight. Giants do not give up. Giants do not simply disappear over time. And allow me to state the obvious when I'm talking about giants, right? A giant can be anything in your life. It can be anything you're afraid of, anything that seems impossible to you, all right? Finishing school, winning a competition, selling a house, making a relationship work, all of those things can be giants. Starting something new. But I, I'll tell you this, giants are brought down when you and I trust God no matter what. Giants are brought down when you and I trust God no matter what. Here's the thing that I found in life, though. Too many people do not trust God with small and medium-sized things, and they wait, and then a giant comes into their life, and because they haven't trusted God with small and medium-sized things, they end up hiding away in a tent just like Saul. And in their mind and in their heart, that giant is absolutely impo is impossible, and even God himself can't even help them through it. So, remember David's speech that he gave to Saul about lions and bears? I want to come back to that for a minute. I believe you've got to trust God in small and medium-sized things in order to be able to trust him in big things. I really believe that you've got to stretch your faith muscle that way. Um, because trust in all relationships, even with God, is earned. And I'm telling you, God will always earn your trust. If you trust him, he'll always be trustworthy. You can count on God, right? Jenny and I, over the years, have stretched our faith muscle. One of the ways I stretched my faith, mu bleh, faith muscle early on was teaching second and third grade Sunday school. At the time, kids scared me to death. Because <laughs> they, you know, they do this thing and they want to touch you. And then sometimes they don't shower for a week. I mean, kids can be scary. And I didn't have anything to do with kids until we volunteered for second and third grade Sunday school. And then we became third and fourth grade Sunday school. And then we became fourth and fifth grade Sunday school. And then we were middle school youth group leaders. That takes faith. Lots of faith. I remember the year that Jenny and I decided that we were going to tithe on our net uh, income. Uh, a pastor had given a challenge, and we kind of looked at each other and did one of those husband-wife budgeting meetings, and I added everything up, and it did not add up for us to start giving money to, back to God through the local church. It made no sense to me, but we started, and we started on net because the gross was like, I couldn't even think of that at that point in my life, right? So we'll, we'll give back to God on what we actually deposit in the bank, and God showed that we could count on him month after month, and then we went from net to gross, and then we started giving extra away, 
all right? I'm telling you, you got to, that faith muscle has got to be stretched in small and medium-sized things. Um, there was the time when uh, we were going to say yes to a church that was going to give us something like thirty-some thousand dollars a year, and the church here was like, "No, stay here. We'll give you five hundred a month." Those are not the same amounts of money, by the way. Okay, those of you good at math, they're not the same amount. Five hundred a month does not add up to thirty-some thousand dollars a year. Trust me. Okay. But we stepped out, and we felt like God was saying yes, and so we stepped into that, and we, God once again showed that we could count on him. All of those things positioned us to a point when God said to start Generations Community Church, right? There was all this small and medium faith-building stuff so that when we jumped on that, off that cliff, we weren't sure how it was going to play out, but we were sure that we could count on God. you got to... So let me ask you a question. What are some things that you could do between now and Christmas that would stretch that faith muscle? What are some things that you could do, whether it's serving or giving or whatever it is, that would stretch that faith muscle for you so that you could know that you could count on God no matter what? The story of David and Goliath doesn't end with what we had on the screen. I want to read you the actual ending of the story, and they'll put it up for you. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. That's a Philistine city. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn along the road from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron, and the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. One act of courage is contagious because courage instills courage. David's one act of courage on that field changed the entire momentum of the battle. And the army that was like, oh, we're all going to die, springs up and chases after the army that had been lording it over them and that was, from all appearances, going to be the victorious army. See, one act of courage can change the momentum in your life. One act of courage can change the momentum for everything. I know this because of what happened in 1955 in the Deep South. I'm going to tell you a story many of you learned in school. See, back in the 1950s in, South, in, in, in southern states, there were two categories of things. There were white things and colored things, white things and colored things, white restrooms, colored restrooms, white sections of the bus, colored sections of the bus, white water fountains, colored water fountains. And that's how it was, and that's how it always was going, had been, and that's how it was going to be because that's how things are in 1955 in the South. And there was a question as a country, are we going to actually realize the things that we talked about in the Constitution? But if you were a colored person living in the South in the 1950s, there was a lot to be afraid of. A lot to be afraid of. One day, one little woman on a bus, you know who I'm talking about, Miss Rosa Parks, decided that she was not going to give up her seat for some white woman. Believe me, in that moment, she was scared to death. You don't tell a white bus driver that you're not going to give up your seat for white people on the bus. That's just how things are. What are you thinking? You get arrested, you lose your job, all kinds, or worse, the people with the hoods come after you. There was a lot to be afraid of. But she had 
made up her mind that there was something that was right that needed to be done. And she swallowed real hard and politely simply said, I'm not going to get up. You may call the police if you'd like, but I'm not getting up from my seat. That one act of courage was a game changer for civil rights in the South. It led to a boycott of the Montgomery bus system. It led to the Supreme Court deciding that, no, you can't segregate people on a bus. One little woman in one bus in Montgomery. Here's why this is important. At some point in your life, you're going to get old enough that you are going to look back and the thing that is going to bother you the most is if you look back and you realize that there was something that you needed to face and instead of facing it and facing it down, you hid in your tent. When old people are asked, what are the things that you regret most in life? What are the things you wish you could go back and change? Do you know what they consistently say? I wish I had taken more risks. I wish I had asked him or her. I wish I had moved. I wish I had, I wish I had not stayed hiding in my tent afraid of the outcome. I wish I had had more courage. Giants will not yield, but they can be killed. I want you guys to slay some giants. God will help you do just that.